This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we study the word this morning, let's go to the throne of grace to ask for guidance on our study this morning. Father, you've revealed yourself to us through your word. It's been faithfully recorded and errantly recorded by your uh, prophets and apostles, and then it has been faithfully copied and transcribed down through the ages so that we have a accurate copy of that which you reveal through the apostles and prophets. And as we look at the scriptures, we're reminded that all of the scripture is profitable for us in our spiritual life. It's the training mechanism that you use and in this church age through the Holy Spirit to teach us, to equip us so that we might become mature believers and that we might shine as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. Now, Father, as we study today, we pray that we might be able to set aside the things that so easily distract us in our thinking, plans for today, plans for this afternoon or evening, events, challenges coming up, or things that happened during the previous week. Pray that we can set these things aside and under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, focus upon your word and what you have to teach us this morning that we might respond to the challenge of the writer of Proverbs. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We've been studying through Proverbs for uh, around five months now, somewhere around uh, the turn of the year. We began our study in the book of Proverbs, and the first nine chapters orient us to the rest of the book. And one of the things that is particularly noteworthy about the introduction to Proverbs is that this is a series of lessons uh, given by a father to his son. That's worth noting today because it's Father's Day. And uh, if you've been around here very long, you realize that we don't spend a lot of time uh, on Mother's Day messages, on Father's Day messages, on whatever day it is. Occasionally, we, we pay attention to things such as Christmas and Resurrection Day, but for the most part, uh, we don't do that. We're a little different from a lot of churches that have different traditions and different things like that. Uh, I grew up in a church very similar to the one uh, that uh, one like us, and we didn't do that. And, and even when I was in seminary, I went to a couple of uh, and attended a variety of different churches. I attended a couple of uh, Baptist churches. I attended some large Bible churches in the Dallas area. And Mo- Mother's Day and Father's Day were not necessarily a focus at any 
at any service. My first church that I went to was a church down in Lamarck, Texas. Uh, some of you may not know where Lamarck is. It's a very different community now than it was in the early part of the 20th century. It was a very small community, first community on the mainland of Galveston County. And the church I pastored was called Paul's Union Church. It's quite amusing because the Paul had nothing to do with the biblical Paul. Uh, back during the Depression, they got their building halfway built. They couldn't finish it. And a member of the church whose name was Paul, I'm just glad it wasn't Herman or Fred. Not that those are bad names, but Fred's Union Church just doesn't sound very biblical. At least his name was Paul. He donated the funds to complete the church. Well, they had one of those churches with the traditions where the uh, you would give flowers to the oldest mother, the youngest mother, the newest mother, the mother with the most children, all of those things. And uh, and the first Mother's Day, I just, you know, I'm a new pastor. I was about 29 years old, I think, and uh, never had that. Boy, did I get crossways with a couple of people in the church. But then they were the ones who grew the flowers, and she was the mother who had the most children and the most grandchildren, and she usually got most of the recognition. So that's the kind of thing that, that plays into a lot of these observances, is it's sort of an ego stroke uh, for the approbation lust of some people. But Father's Day, I think, is something that is, since we're there, we're in Proverbs, is something that we should take a little note of. The Bible designates that it's the man who is the head of the home. It is the man who is the spiritual leader in the home. He is the one who is responsible for teaching and training the children on the path of wisdom, which is a major emphasis, as we've seen throughout these first nine chapters of Proverbs. We make choices in life, and the choices that we make in life reflect which direction we wish to go. The title slide that I'm using and the title picture that I'm using for this series, it depicts these two paths. It may be too small for you to see, but the little yellow sign that's there on the left is the path of life, and the little yellow sign on the road that goes straight ahead is the path of death. We make basically two choices in life every single day. Now, those choices may relate to a number of sub-choices, but the choice that we make is, are we going to choose today the path of life or the path of death? And the path of life is also described in, in uh, Proverbs as the path of foolishness. It's the path of the scorner. It's the path of the mocker. It's the path of the simple. And the term simple is not a positive term. In the Hebrew, it's a word that someone who just doesn't know enough yet to, to really make any kind of wise decision, so they're open. It's the, the same root of the word is a word that means open, and that's not a positive thing. They're, they're open to sucking in all manner of false ideas and false teaching, and the only way to uh, protect ourselves against uh, be, becoming the simple or the scorner or the fool is to take and respond to the invitation of wisdom to freely partake of the teaching of wisdom. And that's the focal point we come to in the last uh, section here. As I've pointed out in the last few, few weeks, there are uh, t- ten lessons in these nine chapters, the way I've broken it down, And there's two final appeals made 
by wisdom, in one in chapter 8 and a second in chapter 9, tying things together for us. And this is the conflict in life between choosing the path of the wise or the path of the fool. Uh, let me direct your attention just to the chapter itself for a minute so we can get a little overview of how the writer of Proverbs sets this up. The way of wisdom is described in ver- the first six verses. And then the way of the path of the fool, the path of the simple, the path of foolishness is in verses 13 through 18, the last six verses. So those are antithetical, they're opposites, they contrast with one another. In between, we have another six verses, verses 7 through 12. Verses 7 through 12 is sort of an aside focusing on uh, the difference between how the scoffer, the, the, the fool, responds to the cry of wisdom and the invitation of wisdom versus the one who is foolish, who is uh, the, the, rather the scoffer versus the wise, how they respond differently to the challenge. The challenge that's set forth from the from wisdom, wisdom is pers- both wisdom and folly are personified as women, and they are setting forth an invitation. So, in one sense, where you've got a choice, which party you're going to attend in your life. Are you going to attend the party that looks like it's a lot of fun and very exciting and a lot of uh, wonderful, glamorous people are there and they're doing all kinds of things that look quite uh, quite enjoyable and quite fun? Are you going to take the more serious, go to the more serious group who are who have accepted the invitation of the woman, the lady wisdom? And that's a choice each of us makes every day. And this is the appeal in these first nine chapters. Now, the role of the father is to teach and train the family in the path of wisdom. And there are a lot of different ways that you can do that. And if you're not really sure how to teach, if you've never had any kind of instruction, I would encourage you, if you are a dad, if you are a male head of the house, it might be a good idea to come to this Child Evangelism Fellowship event next Saturday morning just to find out a few things. Uh, they have tremendous materials, and uh, you, you know, I'm not saying the ladies shouldn't come. They certainly should because parents will work together in training children, but it's primarily the man's responsibility. And they have a lot of wonderful material that you can use even just as a parent in teaching and training your children in the Word of God. It's not the responsibility of the local church or the local public school to teach and train your children. We may delegate a modest amount of time to those uh, institutions, but it is it is only when you are teaching your children at home that that the ultimate responsibility is going to be uh, going to be fulfilled, and that's your job as a parent. It's your job as a parent, as a mom, as a dad and you need to develop your ability in those areas. So as we come to our final chapter here in the introduction, we're faced with this choice, the choice we we make every single day, numerous times every day, path of wisdom, the path of the fool. Now, in the previous section, in chapter 8, the focus was ultimately on 
the one who is who is responsive to wisdom is blessed. If you look at verse chapter eight, verse thirty-four, we read, "Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily." Notice, not weekly, just on Sunday, not uh, three times a week, but daily, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my door. So there's there's positive anticipation of receiving wisdom and learning wisdom uh, from from God. And so uh, that's the focus of that chapter. But here as we come to chapter 9, wisdom is portrayed as a lady who is setting forth a banquet and sending out uh, invitations to all. There's no limitation on the invitation, and not only that, but she is providing a sumptuous banquet, and there is no cost. It's a great illustration of grace. Grace means that uh, something is given to us freely. It doesn't mean that there's no cost associated with it. For example, with salvation, the cost was the death of the Son of God. Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, but to receive the benefits, the blessing of that death, means that we simply accept a free gift. We are given the opportunity to receive the gift of eternal life by trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation. When we do so, we're also responding to different ways in which the offer is made in Scripture, an offer for to realize forgiveness of sins, uh, to be justified, to be reconciled to God. All of these are, part, are, are just different benefits from the death of Christ. But it is a free offer, but it was not free to God. It costs something, the death of Christ on the cross. So we are free to respond. Now in verse 9, excuse me, chapter 9, verse 1, we read, Wisdom built her house, she has hewn out her seven pillars. Now, the picture that we have here at the beginning is an extended metaphor where wisdom is pre- preparing for this banquet. It involves the construction of the place where the banquet will be held, and it involves all of the preparation of the food and the wine and uh, the furnishings of the table and then the invitations when she sends out her maidens, her handmaidens, uh, with the invitations in the in the third verse. So the picture here is of some someone preparing a banquet. Uh, the first word here uh, translated as wisdom is accurate. However, it is in the plural in the Hebrew. Uh, the plural use of the noun here is really a plural of excellence. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's to be treated as a singular concept, even though the plural is there, it intensifies the meaning of wisdom, the fullness of everything related to wisdom. For the verb that is associated with, with it, wisdom has built, is a, a third-person singular uh, verb. And if you know anything about grammar, you know that a plural noun requires a agreement with a plural verb, but having a singular verb here indicates that the noun is to be treated as a singularity, not as a multiplicity. It's not wisdoms, but it intensifies the meaning of wisdom as one uh, one complex uh, of ideas. 
And so we read, wisdom has built her house. The word translated built uh, is the same word that is used to describe God's creation of Eve in the Garden of Eden. And it's a word that means to carefully uh, build and construct something through a uh, use of, of uh, craftsmanship. It, is, uh, it describes the creative power. And it shows that this is something that is thought out, something that has been prepared for and planned, and not something that is done haphazardly. So it and it presents sort of an overview of what the next uh, couple of verses will will focus on. That wisdom has uh, built the house, and then the second part clarifies the first part. This is sometimes called. uh, a parallelism, uh, an emblematic parallelism where the second line further develops the first line. How did she build her house? She did it by uh, hewing out her seven pillars. Now, when we get to a phrase like this, we wonder, what are the seven pillars? Where did that idea come from? And over the years, there have been a number of different guesses as to what these seven pillars are, and they reflect the fact that over a lot of church history, interpretation was based upon some sort of uh, allegory, allegorical method of spiritualizing where you just sort of uh, try to guess or uh, what that meaning might be, looking for some hidden spiritual connotation there. And so there have been a lot of different uh, ideas presented as to what these seven pillars are. One of the more creative was the idea that this was the se- seven gate. This the seven pillars represented seven the first seven chapters in the introduction, recognizing that's what contains the first ten lessons in chapters eight and nine. Uh, represent a, a conclusion, and so this is the idea that the seven pillars are the seven first seven chapters, but that really doesn't work. There's no indication anywhere in anything in the text that indicates that. That's important for us whenever we read the Bible to let the Bible interpret itself. Don't try to read things uh, into the into the Bible. Uh, this was taken as a title for a book by T.E. Lawrence, otherwise known as Lawrence of Arabia, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. But it didn't really have anything to do with the Bible. It just borrowed from that uh, from that imagery. Others have suggested that this is a, a reflection of the uh, ancient concept of dividing the liberal arts into seven categories. In the uh, classical world, the seven categories of the liberal arts were divided into a set of three and a set of four. The trivium included grammar, rhetoric, and dialectics. And then the quadrivium, which is represents the four, were music, arithmetic, geometry, and astronomy. I often like to uh, reference that because in the ancient world, they had an understanding of the interrelationship of different uh different areas of thinking, different areas of intellectual intellectual activity that we've lost somewhat today. Notice uh, you can easily see the relationship between grammar, grammar is a foundation of language, how language is structured together. Rhetoric is taking that and using that to put together a, a speech, a oratory, and then dialectics is using that in the realm of logic. Sometimes it's, to, it's called logic rather than dialectics in structuring one's thought in a logical manner. 
So you see that there's a core relationship between those three things. They're not disparate elements. They all relate to one another. Well, the same is true about the quadrivium. We easily see this when we look at the latter three that I mentioned, arithmetic, geometry, and astronomy. We understand that at the root of all of those, there's something having to, that has to do with numbers. But music, wait a minute. What about music? That doesn't seem to fit. And yet music is inherently based on numbers, based on ratios, based upon chord structure. So there is a numerical logic underlying music, and that's what gives music structure. And uh, uh, music isn't just about uh, making people feel a certain way. There are things that are taught, things that come across because of the uh, numerical structure of the chords themselves and how that uh, that's put together. But that doesn't really work because this was development from the Greeks, and we're talking about Semitic thought several uh, hundred years earlier than the development of the liberal arts in ancient Greece. In Jewish thought, the Midrash talks about the seven heavens or seven climates or seven parts of the earth, but again, that doesn't really fit the context here. In the early part of the church age, in what's called the patristic period, the first four or five hundred years, and then the Middle Ages, uh, you saw the development of seven sacraments within the within the uh, uh, Roman Catholic Church, and there were a lot of a lot of people in the Middle Ages and later who mystically said, "Well, the seven pillars; these are the seven sacraments." See, there's no connection, nothing in the text that indicates that. Uh, then others tried to be a little more textual, and they thought, well, the seven, what else has seven, a grouping of seven in the Old Testament? And there's a mention of the seven uh, spirits of God, which are the seven, mini- seven different ministries of God, the Holy Spirit, uh, in Isaiah 11.2, related to the Messiah. And again, that's, that's a little more creative, tries to be a little more textual, but that doesn't seem to fit the context here. In fact, the context, we really have to just look at the context whenever we see any kind of metaphor and just say, what, what are they talking about? They're just using, uh, using figurative language to talk about the construction of a house. Wisdom is building a house. And so this, uh, we look more towards archaeology to understand something about the construction of a house than we would any of the other things that have been uh, mentioned in church history. Uh, the, uh, the way homes were often constructed, especially among the aristocracy, there would be an open courtyard, and that courtyard would have a portico along one side with, with uh, supporting pillars. Uh, there was an Arabic proverb that said that a rich man has a house that stands on 12 pillars. It has to do with something that gives structure and uh, stability to the house. And so when wisdom is building her house, wisdom is constructed on something that gives it a foundation, gives it stability, and therefore uh, gives it strength. The fact that there are seven pillars, the number seven in Scripture, often relates to the idea of perfection. So what this does is it's, it shows the completion, the completedness, rather, the completedness of the house that wisdom built. It is sufficient for those who come to dwell in the house of wisdom. 
Then in verse 2, we talk about her preparation beyond the house, her preparation for the uh, uh, feast in the celebration of wisdom. She slaughters her animals. And this relates not only to just the process of the original slaughter of the animal, the lamb, goat, um, cattle, whatever it might be, but it would also stand for the entire process of preparation. The ancient world, this took some time. You didn't just go down to the local uh, HEB or Kroger and run into the uh, run into the deli or the prepared food section and pick up uh, a meal. Uh, it would take uh, most of the day, maybe two or three days, in order to uh, provide uh, the meal. And so... The idea that she slaughters her meat, it talks about her complete preparation of everything necessary for uh, physical sustenance. Uh, Slaughtering is a uh, difficult activity. It demands uh, strength and it demands capability and demands knowledge of an animal. Some of you are hunters and you have uh, gone through the process of butchering an animal and preparing it for uh, to be put in the freezer, and this is something that uh, is divorced from our lifestyle a lot today. We don't uh, we don't know what's involved in that, but it it takes uh, a good bit of time in order to do that. But wisdom represented here as a woman is fully capable of slaughtering the animals. Then that takes care of the food side, and then she mixes her wine, so it shows the capability of providing the beverages that are necessary for uh, to go along with the meal. Often uh, in the ancient world, wine was mixed with uh, various herbs or honey or some other uh, spice in order to give it a, a certain uh, flavor that would then blend with the uh, with the meal that was being provided. So she uh, provides for everything in the meal, and then she furnishes her table. She is concerned not just about the functionality of the food, but also the presentation of the food and how the table will be set with all of the proper uh, instruments for eating. And so this emphasizes the, uh, the concept and wisdom of something that is done uh, skillfully and beautifully that it's not just doing the right thing the right way, it is doing the right thing the right way, but in a way that shows uh, skill and talent and is aesthetically pleasing. And so she uh, sets and furnishes the table. Once that has been provided, what we see here is that wisdom has provided everything that we need in a place where we're going to reside, where we're going to to go. And so we live in a house that has stability, and it provides for our every need at no cost. This is a great picture of the teaching of God's Word. God's Word is free to us, just as salvation is free to us. And so we are to study it, and it will give us stability and sustenance for every area of our life. And then wisdom, once having set the table and provided everything for us, then she is going to send out her uh, handmaids to invite all to this place to come to the party. Now, this is in contrast. I just want you to note this. Just skip down with your eye to the closing part of the section. Notice how wisdom is presented as being thoughtful at planning, preparing, uh, covering every exigency, exigency uh, uh, that possible, 
And in contrast, you have this noisy, foolish woman. Uh, She's simple. She's open to any idea and often has absorbed many contradictory ideas. There's no sense of order there. She's simple. She actually knows nothing. There's maybe a lot of information, but no structured knowledge, no truth. For she sits at the door of her house on a seat by the high places of the city, and she does the same thing. She cries out. She calls out to those who pass by. So she, too, is offering an invitation, and she sits at the highest place of the city. So like the like Lady Wisdom, she is offering what she has to everyone. So we're presented with this this choice. Now, the invitation from the... From Lady Wisdom is that she sent out her maidens. Who are the maidens of wisdom? These would be the prophets of the Bible. These are the ones who are calling out in the highways and byways of life. In the New Testament, we have the apostles and the pastors. These are the one and evangelists who are calling people to come and dwell in the house of wisdom. And so now that uh, the banquet is all prepared and the home is all prepared. She sends out her uh, hand, handmaidens in order to invite people uh, to come. Now, there are some that have raised an objection here that in the ancient world, you wouldn't have uh, female uh, uh, messengers going out to invite male guests to the banquet. However, this is uh, seen even in the culture of the time, in the Ugaritic uh, legend that we've uh, uncovered in recent years called the legend of King Carrot. The king instructs his wife to prepare a meal, to slaughter the fattest animals of the fat stock, to open up the wine flask, to invite the dignitaries and troop leaders, and then she is the one who sends out the invitation coming from a woman to one and all within the community. So this is not something that is uh, disconnected from the com- community. So she sends out her invitation, and then in the uh, next verse, verse 4, we begin to read how the invitation is phrased. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Now, this word simple, again, is the same word we've seen before. It's a word that indicates anyone who is just open to any idea, and they are uh, they, it's the, the, they're, they're sort of the naive, uh, foolish person. They haven't uh, established themselves. They haven't sunk down their roots deeply into their uh, foolishness yet. And so they are uh, they're convertible. They're winnable to the side of wisdom. These will be con- uh, contrasted to the one identified as a scoffer in verses uh, 7 through 9. Uh, down to verse 12, because the scoffer is one who is already set in his ways and refuses to respond uh, to the invitation of wisdom and is set on his path of of, uh, self-destruction. So in verse 4, we have the invitation, whoever is simple, whoever, this is the call of the gospel as well to anyone uh, it doesn't matter your station in life. It doesn't matter what mistakes you've made in life. It doesn't matter what your past is. The invitation is there to freely respond to the offer of salvation freely through Jesus Christ. The offer is to you 
uh, to come and to learn of wisdom so that you can avoid the mistakes, the pitfalls, the disasters that come from those who reject the wisdom of the Bible, the wisdom of Christianity, so that their life ends up being a death-like existence, if not ending up in a premature catastrophe, ending up in their death. So whoever is simple, let him turn in here. As for him who lacks understanding, that's parallel to the simple and expands upon that idea. She says to him, notice how in the second part of verse 4, there's an, a further expansion of that front line. The first line, whoever is simple, let him turn in here, now is expanded in the next three lines. The one who lacks understanding is the simple. And then let him, un, let him, uh, uh, Whoever lacks wisdom, she says to him, Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine I have mixed. Now this is where we get our action plan. We see this through the imperatives in the text, and this is the only section, verses 5 and 6, where we have imperatives, commands in this passage. And we are commanded to come, to eat, to drink, and then in the next verse, to forsake to live, and then to go. There's a pattern to this. First of all, we have to take in the Word of God. The metaphor of eating and drinking in Scripture is taking something and making it a part of ourselves. When we eat something or drink something, it comes into our body. It's then metabolized and becomes part of our being. So eating and drinking is often used in the Scripture as a picture either of believing in Christ, for Jesus said that if we don't... Uh, eat of his body and drink of his blood, then we will not have eternal life. And what he is he means by that metaphor is basic, the same idea. If we don't accept his gift of salvation, if we don't believe or receive uh, his gift of salvation by faith alone, then it will end up in eternal condemnation. The same is true about our ongoing relationship with the Lord. We need to take in the word. Uh, we need to... Uh, eat the word of God, take it in so it becomes part of our life. So this is what is pictured in verse 5 in the message is to come and eat of my bread, which is true wisdom, biblical thinking. Eat of my bread, drink of the wine that I have mixed, the preparation of uh, Bible doctrine to be part of our life. Verse 6, forsake foolishness. So there's a choice here. We have to turn from the foolish choices that we have made, the foolish patterns that we have adopted. We need to turn our back upon the path that leads to death, and by doing so, we live. We're going to choose life rather than death, and this means we're going to choose a different path. We're going to go in the path of understanding and not in the path of foolishness. Then we enter into this next verse, uh, set of verses, six verses that describe uh, what happens uh, to those who are who refuse the offer, the invitation of wisdom? They become a scoffer. A scoffer is a, a fool or a simple person that has basically become fossilized or ossified in their negative volition. They've hardened their heart to God so that they're no longer responsive. In fact, anyone who tries to correct them is just going to bring misery upon themselves. This is how this is presented. He who corrects a scoffer. These next two verses are tied together by the using the same word correct. 
uh, in verse 7. We have he who corrects a scoffer. Verse 8, do not correct a scoffer. So we have tied together by the word correct and by the word that's translated uh, scoffer. And so these verses 7 uh, through the first part of uh, 7 and 8 are tied together. Uh, this <coughs> represents these consequences of the one who uh, uh, of the path of the one who chooses wisdom versus foolishness. So if you are wise and you attempt to correct a scoffer, this is someone who is hardened in their opposition to God. Sometimes this word is translated as a mocker, somebody who is characterized by insolent pride and arrogance uh, against God. So he who corrects a scoffer just brings shame upon himself. And the idea that he brings shame upon himself can be either a result of the fact that the scoffer just ridicules and rebukes the wise person and just reacts in hostile uh, opposition to the person trying to correct them, or it could be because it's just a, a process that's going to end in failure. And so it's going to be a shame because you're trying to correct somebody that's not ever going to respond, and it's a waste of time and waste of energy. And we have several uh, passages in in the Proverbs that talk about a scoffer. Definition is given in a couple of different passages, Proverbs 21-24 and Proverbs 3-34. The scoffer is a proud and haughty man. He is governed by arrogance towards God, a rejection of truth. So Proverbs 21:24 says, A proud and haughty man, scoffer is his name. He acts with arrogant pride. And God has a specific attitude towards the scoffer. Proverbs 3:35. surely uh, he... Uh, 334, surely he scorns the scornful, but God gives grace to the humble. He rejects the arrogant. He is, in the New Testament translation, based upon the Septuagint, it's more the idea of he, God declares war against the arrogant. God is opposed to the arrogant, and he is, uh, he, but he gives grace to the one who is humble, who desires to know truth, and desires to have wisdom. Uh, in the opening introduction, this is part of the uh, warning that the father gives to the son, and, and he, as well as an invitation to the simple to come and respond to wisdom. The father says, How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning. They, they, they love the fact that they're hostile to God. They've become atheist or agnostic, and they revel in their uh, arguments, but as Romans one points out, they know in their heart of hearts that God exists. For God has made His knowledge evident to them, and for the knowledge of God is within them. But they are suppressing that knowledge uh, in unrighteousness, and so they have become fools while they profess to be wise. So Proverbs um, nineteen twenty nine says that the end result of the scoffer is judgment. Judgments are prepared. For scoffers and beatings for the backs of fools. This is just a, dis a dramatic description of the divine discipline that will come in the path of the one who has rejected truth. Proverbs 14.6 says that a scoffer seeks wisdom and doesn't find it. 
How many times have we talked to people who have said, well, they've read the Bible, but, you know, they just couldn't make any sense of it, and they couldn't find why it was just full of myths and legends, and they could never find truth. And as they've gone to church, and they've heard, uh, or they may have even read some good books, but they just reject it because they have already become so deeply embedded in a foundation of arrogant uh, boastfulness against God that they wouldn't see truth if it slapped them in the face. And so a scoffer will seek and won't ever find it, no matter how visible it might be to him. But on the opposite side, knowledge is easy to him who understands. If you've humbled yourself before God, if you have the fear of the Lord, then you will easily see the truth that God makes clear to you. Uh, chapter nine, verse eight, also reminds us of the of the dangers that we see uh, articulated in this one verse of the dangers of correcting a scoffer. Is repeated in nine eight. Do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. Uh, rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. This is the uh, Hebrew word yachach, and it has the idea of rebuke or reprove or correct. So. Well, the response will be they'll just lash out at you in negative opposition. In verse 9, we're told the opposite. If you give instruction to a wise man, he will be still wiser. He loves being corrected. He desires to do well, and so he is not governed by subjectivity and personal antagonism to someone who uh, is trying to help him and pointing out the path of wisdom. And so the wise person responds well to rebuke, uh, he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, he will be still wiser. But teach a just man, he will increase in learning. So we see just the opposite between the wise and the fool. And then uh, we see this also repeated in other passages in Proverbs. Proverbs 15.31, The ear that hears the rebukes of life, will abide among the wise. So we need to be responsive to those who are honestly correcting us, and that correction comes from the Scripture, and that we will live among the wise. Proverbs 17.10 says that rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows of a fool. The fool just won't respond. Proverbs 19.25 says strike a scoffer, and the simple will become wary. You know, if you, uh, it, it just emphasizing the fact that they're not going to be responsive. Rebuke one who has understanding, and he will discern knowledge. So once again, this contrast between the scoffer and the one who is humble. Uh, Proverbs 19, uh, 20, 25 was a verse I just looked at. Three others. Uh, Proverbs 10.8, the wise in heart will receive commands, but a prating fool will fall. Notice the difference. The core value is humility. Proverbs 12.15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Are you willing to listen to others who are more mature and more uh, advanced in spiritual life than yourself? Proverbs 15.32, he who disdains instruction despises his own soul, but he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. And so this is because there's a humility there. The core value, of course, is verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Three key words there linked together, wisdom, knowledge, 
and understanding. We can't get to the path of wisdom, we can't get down the path of wisdom unless we are responsive to God's Word. We have to want to know God. We have to humble ourselves before God, and in doing so, then uh, we will begin to develop a knowledge of the Word of God and an understanding of how to apply it uh, in our lives. The Only the wise and the humble person appreciates rebuke, because he can learn from it. Proverbs 9, 11, and 12 we read, For by me, wisdom says, your days will be multiplied and years of life will be added to you. This is the benefit of following the invitation to the to wisdom's party, because that's where there's real life. We're reminded of the uh, other Proverbs that teach that uh, Proverbs uh, 14, uh, 12, that th- there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. And here we have the similar idea that uh, by following wisdom, our days will be multiplied, years of life will be added. There is not just the length of time, but the richness of life. If you want to live life well and enjoy the benefits, then it has to be based on wisdom. In verse 12, we read, if you are wise, you're wise for yourself, and if you scoff, you will bear it alone. What this is emphasizing is that your life is the result of the decisions that you make. We make many, many decisions every single day in life, and it is the accumulation of those decisions that determine the quality of our life. Ultimately, our life is determined by our volition. Are we going to choose the path of life or choose the path of death? And the one who benefits is the individual. The one who responds to wisdom is going to experience all of the benefits and blessings of wisdom, but the one who is a scoffer, the one who is boastfully arrogant, is the one who who reaps the negative consequences of his arrogance. Then we come to the closing uh, statement describing the path of Folly, the way of the foolish woman, going to the raucous party that foolishness uh, throws. It looks great. It looks like it's, it's a lot more fun than the other party. Its uh, trappings are a lot more enjoyable but on the surface, but it is really a party celebrating uh, death. Uh, there's an easy, simple contrast between the invitation process, as I've pointed out already in verse 14, uh, the fool, foolish lady sits at the door of her house. She hasn't constructed the house. She hasn't built anything. She hasn't planned anything. It's just there. She doesn't care about those things. She sits by the high places of the city. This is a vantage point where she can uh, make her invitation known to all. And then in verse 15 we read, She calls to those who pass by, who go straight on their way, uh, whoever is simple. Let him turn in here, and as for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Whatever the area of temptation is, the temptation to sin, sin always seems to present a a facade of fun, a, a facade of joy and pleasure. And even though we know it's wrong and it's ultimately going to hurt us, we think that, well, if nobody's watching, nobody sees, nobody knows what's going on, then I'll get away with it. 
and it will be uh, very pleasant. And so that's the seduction of sin. This is the same thing that we see from the from Satan in the Garden of Eden as he is challenging uh, Eve. Well, it, it, has God really provided everything for you? And she says, everything but the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and the, the serpent has working his wiles on her to make her think that this is something that will be, uh, that she's missing out on, something that will be very attractive and, and make her life better. And see, if you eat it, you will be like God. And so the temptation that is offered to us is that if we are disobedient, that somehow we get away with it and life will be better. But what we learn in the end is that the one who follows this does not know that the dead are there not necessarily those that are going to uh, be eternally condemned because that's not really the focus as it's used in the Old Testament, but this is in life today. It is a walk, you're, you're the walking dead. You're a dead man walking. Uh, you're not experiencing the richness of life, the joy of life, the pleasure of life as God intended. And while you may be able to uh, anesthetize the pain in your life for a while with, with drugs or pleasure or alcohol or food or whatever it may be. Uh, eventually it comes to a payday, a judgment day in life when those uh, artifices do not work and life becomes empty and we wake up in the morning and in the middle of the night knowing that that life just isn't what it should be if we're honest with ourselves. So the conclusion is that if you follow, follow the path of wisdom, it leads to death, a death-like experience. If you reject the wisdom of the gospel, then it will indeed lead to an eternal death, an eternal condemnation. But if you're a believer and you reject the word of God, then it will lead to a death-like existence. It may be a lot of physical pleasure and fun for a while, but the end result is a death-like existence. It, you, you will develop your own self-developed tragedy. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this time to study your word, to realize that we have a clear, uh, clear commands here, clear action plan to uh, eat, to take, eat of your word, uh, to uh, make it a part of our lives, to forsake the foolishness of human viewpoint, and to live on the basis of divine viewpoint. But Father, we know that there may be some here who aren't really sure whether they have eternal life or an eternal destiny with you, if they have any kind of relationship with you, and so we hope that you will make the gospel clear to them. The gospel is the simple offer of salvation, the good news that you can have eternal life, that your sins are forgiven, and that when physical death occurs, there is an ongoing blessed existence before God with roles and responsibilities in the future, and that the only way to arrive there is on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, where he paid the penalty for sin. And so the free offer of the gospel is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And it's our prayer that if you've never trusted in Christ before, that you'll take this opportunity to trust in him, to believe that Jesus died for you, and by believing you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with where we need to apply these truths, and may we consistently choose the path of life, the path of wisdom, the path of divine viewpoint. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.